You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 1946 in review. WOR News Division presents its annual summary of the news of the year. Featuring from WOR's file of historic recordings, the voices of President Harry S. Truman, Secretary of State Burns, Winston Churchill, Prime Minister Clement Attlee, Bernard Baruch, and Governor Thomas E. Dewey. The actual sounds of history in the making. This was 1946. Tonight, your narrator is Martin Wolfson. When you begin by saying, this is the story of 1946, nobody feels anything. No one is proud. No one is ashamed. No one is joyful. And no one weeps. The numbers 1946 mean a year, that's all. 365 days, each marked off attractively by the pinup girls on the Esquire calendar. 1946, it was the year Sally fell in love with the Air Force's lieutenant. And Joe hung out his doctor's shingle, rubbing a rabbit's foot for luck while he waited for his first patient. Okay, next Tuesday night we'll have a party. And then it'll be 1947. The story of 1946 has a few other elements in it, though. In 1946, in the high councils of the peacemakers, there was very little agreement. This brought your death in the Third World War much closer. Too close for comfort, if you've read the headlines and have anything between your ears except your hat. In 1946, capital and labor didn't get along very well. And there were bloody mornings when Americans bashed each other's heads in beside the huge factories we're so proud of. The winds of the Pacific being gentle have hardly erased the names on the crosses at Tarawa. And the rains of France fall lightly and with due respect on the soil of the graves at Neufchateau. But the dead are nevertheless very dead, being therefore unable to remind us that there was a purpose in this time. Maybe after you hear the story of 1946, you'll want to do something about it. And maybe not. Maybe that's our trouble. You begin by saying, this is the story of such and such a year. But nobody feels anything. No one is proud. No one is ashamed. No one is joyful. And no one weeps. (laughs) 
President Truman began the year with a radio address on the State of the Union. The President said, 1946 is our year of decision. This year we lay the foundation of our economic structure, which will have to serve for generations. This year we must decide whether or not we shall devote our strength to reaching the goal of full production and full employment. This year we shall have to make our decisions, which will determine whether or not we gain that great future at home and abroad, which we fought so valiantly to achieve. 1946, our year of decision, turned out to be a year of black markets, shortages, inflation, famine, strikes, race hatred, and civil war. A few weeks later in London, the General Assembly of the United Nations held its first meeting. A delegate was present from each of the 51 member nations. You couldn't see them, but a lot of other people were there, too. People who believed in the idea of United Nations. Wendell Wilkie was there. And Ernie Pyle. And Vinegar Joe Stillwell. Four chaplains were there. Named John Washington, George Fox, Alex Good, and Clark Bowling. Remember them? The rabbi, two ministers, and a priest. Who, when their ship was torpedoed, gave their life belts to American soldiers and died on that ship together with their arms around each other singing. They knew what United Nations means. They were there. Believe you me. Helen Kelly was there. And the guys who raised the flag on Iwo Jima. A gentleman from Hyde Park was there. One of the men who was in on the beginning of the idea. Walt Whitman, years ago, predicted how they all felt when he wrote, Be not disheartened. Affection shall solve the problems of freedom yet. Those who love each other shall become invincible. One from Massachusetts shall be a Missourian's comrade. From Maine and from hot Carolina, and another in Oregonese shall be friends, shall yet be victorious. Brother, all you have to do is say Poland instead of Massachusetts, and France instead of Missouri, and Walt Whitman had it right there in his poem. The peoples of the earth were getting together in London town. Clement Attlee greeted the U.N. delegates with these words. Coming of the atomic bomb was only the last of a series of warnings to mankind that unless the powers of destruction could be controlled, immense ruin and almost annihilation would be the lot of the most highly civilized portions of mankind. I welcome, therefore, the decision to remit the whole problem of the control of atomic energy to a commission of the United Nations organization. In this discovery, we can see set clearly before us in tangible form the question that faces the modern world. Here is an invention 
fraught with immense possibilities on the one hand of danger and on the other of advantage to the human race. It is for the peoples of the world, through their representatives, to make their choice between life and death. Europe looked at that moment to the United States for leadership. But when Europeans looked our way, this is what they saw and heard. You ain't going through that picket line, Biden. That's who? I'm going anywhere I please. Look, pal, we ain't going to this strike for that. Get out of my way, or to help me, you'll be spitting your teeth out on the sidewalk. Oh, yeah? Yeah, get out of my way. Oh, why are you rotten? Meatpackers, soft coal, railroads, and New York's tugboat men. The world's greatest city, which depends upon its tugboats for oil, food, and coal, was a ghost city. It was dead as a doornail. On the evening of February 11th, New York's health commissioner, Ernest I. Stebbins, took to the air and announced, In view of the fact that the strike of the tugboat personnel continues and the shortage of fuels has now reached an acute and dangerous stage... Therefore, by virtue of the power vested in the Department of Health of the City of New York by the order of the Board of Health of the City of New York, made pursuant to Section 563 of the New York City Charter, dated February 9, 1946, and approved by Mayor William O'Dwyer of the City of New York on said date, declaring a state of great, imminent, and increasing peril to the public health of the people of the City of New York by reason of a lack of fuel. I, Ernest L. Stebbins, Commissioner of Health of the City of New York, do hereby order and direct that all motion picture houses, theaters, nightclubs, bars and grills, dance halls, bowling alleys, billiard parlors, all places of assembly and other places of amusement, libraries and museums, all schools and other educational institutions, all commercial, business, and industrial establishments, irrespective of what type of fuel is used, and without regard to available supplies on hand, cease operating and close, effective 11.59 p.m. tonight, February 11, 1946. New York wailed and moaned and was bitterly embarrassed and uncomfortable. But few New Yorkers realized that compared to another great American city, they were playing an unimpressive second fiddle. That city was Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh had a lovely year. A steel strike that lasted 26 days. 
a power strike that lasted a month, a 115-day strike at Westinghouse, a hotel strike. Let's see now. There's been just one day in 1946 when Pittsburgh didn't have a strike. <laughs> Pittsburgh had a lovely year. Let's get one thing straight before you get any fancy notions. Labor as such was not the villain of the piece. Labor had its good, solid reasons, which sounded like this. You know what's happened to prices. I could afford to live on much less years ago. But how can I do it today? Most of us work very hard for the salaries we collect. Next time you're in a highway diner, take a good look at the all-night truck drivers. Their eyes are bloodshot. Their backs hurt. And they have a peculiar idea. They think they're entitled to decent wages, decent hours, and a vacation now and then. Do you mind? Striking ain't easy. You don't get your weekly paycheck. You pull your last savings bond out of the bank. You eat much less for dinner so the baby can still have its formula. Labor had its good, solid reasons. So labor this year found its voice as never before. Listen to this special recording made by WOR with portable equipment at a meeting of striking truckmen in Manhattan. A leader speaks to the assembled strikers. Now I'll tell you, you can be with me, you can be against me. But still, 807 men, and if we don't get a signed contract tomorrow, we're not going to roll. Labor found its voice this year as never before. And here's another recording made with WOR special equipment at a mass meeting of striking transportation workers in New York. Mr. McMahon, Secretary of the Union, speaks. Well, brothers and sisters, let's take a look at the situation, see what we got here. We got a victory tonight of $18,500,000 the biggest victory that the transit workers ever won in the history of the system. The biggest victory that the transport workers union ever won. And it wasn't so easy to win it because we literally had to pull it out of the hands of the Wall Street wolves and the real estate sharks to get it. They had the $6 million tied up. They had it tied up tight in the court. And Regalman was prepared to appeal and appeal and appeal and appeal some more. And we wouldn't have got the retroactive pay, not this Christmas, maybe not next Christmas, maybe not ever at all. But the Transport Workers Union deserves the sole and complete credit for putting this $200 to $300 in back pay into the pockets of the 33,000 men. Labor had its good, solid reasons, and so did capital. A great many of the unions have strangled our economy and made the public suffer because of jurisdictional disputes. This simply means that a squabble between two unions, an issue over which we have no control, causes a loss to the owners of struck plants running into millions of dollars. It also means that... Because the unions cannot settle their problems, some of which have been picayune and ridiculous, the public must go without basic necessities. 
Besides the jurisdictional disputes, the actual question of dealing with union leaders has often been difficult, if not impossible. Certain union leaders have been arrogant and unreasoning. In their desire to get while the getting is good, these men have called strikes and then walked out on conciliation meetings. Sometimes because their power went to their heads and they were over-anxious to impress the union members and so keep their jobs. Add to this burden on capital the fact that often we could not meet union demands simply because we couldn't possibly afford it. We have refused to meet other demands because they were utterly fantastic. In East Peoria, Illinois this year, there was a strike on the Toledo, Peoria, and Western Railroad. The language in which capital and labor spoke to each other sounded like this. Erwin Pashon, a striking timekeeper, and Arthur Brown, a striking engineer, were shot and killed by men guarding a train at which tickets had supposedly thrown rocks. The differences between capital and labor had reached a point where Americans were murdering each other simply because they couldn't settle those differences together as human beings. This was 1946. The struggle between Americans wasn't confined to the arenas of industry. Many an American fought desperately against vague forces he could not understand. Examine, if you will, this ex-private of the United States Army and his attractive new bride, together in a trailer parked just outside the city limits of Los Angeles. How did you make out, darling? Get any leave? Oh, no, nothing at all. But that man in the drugstore said he knew a real estate agent. I told you I didn't find anything, didn't I? told you a hundred times I walked my feet off all day and I didn't find anything. That's about apartments. People laugh in your face. Now, leave me alone, will you? Easy, darling, easy. We'll find something. When? In five years? How long do you think we can go on living in this stinking trailer? This is a fine deal, listen. This is what they jammed down my throat in school, uh, the land of opportunity. Stop it, please, stop it. My country, tis of thee. Or a guy can't even get two crummy rooms for himself and his wife. Or you crawl around like bugs in a sink drain in a broken down trailer or a cold water flat. Remember Phil, my buddy? What's happened to him? Phil hit the beach, Guadalcanal. He took everything the Japs had and more. Then he came back to the States. Without a scratch on him and feeling great. But he couldn't find a place to live for his wife and his kids. They had to sit in the waiting room at a railroad station all night, night after night. So one of Phil's kids got pneumonia and died. You know where the big husky lug is now? He's crying like a baby in a loony ward at the state hospital. When the kid died, he cracked up and the doctors can't do a thing with him. That's how my country, tis of thee, paid off on Phil. Darling, please stop it. You will end up where he is. All right, then. So I will. Maybe I'd be better off that way. 
But I can't stand this. I can't stand it. The atomic bomb cost $2 billion. For a very small fraction of that amount, we could build adequate housing for every veteran in the United States. This country, which came from scratch and built 50,000 planes in one year, was millions of housing units short when 1946 began and millions of housing units short when it ended. Wilson Wyatt, the federal housing expediter, had a plan to build houses for veterans. He asked the Reconstruction Finance Corporation for the money to do it. The RFC, which has already loaned $7 million to revive German business, refused the request. Mr. Wyatt had resigned. This, too, was 1946. In the International Theater, after that first U.N. meeting in London, the one world became two worlds, with the United States and Great Britain on one side, Soviet Russia on the other. Winston Churchill, visiting the city of Fulton, Missouri, launched what was by far the most bitter attack on the Soviet to date. Mr. Churchill said, Nobody knows what Soviet Russia and its communist international organization intends to do in the immediate future, or what are the limits, if any, to their expansive and proselytizing tendencies. Then Mr. Churchill went on to coin a phrase that described the barrier between the Soviet and the United States. He drew a dramatic picture of his concept with these words. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia. All these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere. And all our subjects, in one form or another, not only to Soviet influence, but to a very high and, in some cases, increasing measure of control from, uh, from Moscow. One observer said after Churchill's speech, If you ask me, the atmosphere today is just like it was back in the days of Munich, just before war broke out. One magazine, magazine editor wrote after Churchill's speech, The United Nations are headed for the rocks. James Burns didn't think so. So when the Security Council of the U.N. convened later at Hunter College in New York, Mr. Burns tried to close up the leaks in what some persons believed was a sinking ship. Mr. Burns did so by making an analogy to the difficulties faced by our original 13 states in establishing their union. It is less than 160 years ago that our 13 sovereign states entered into a union for their common defense to promote the general welfare and to secure the blessings of liberty for themselves and their posterity. 
That was then an untried experiment. And many doubted whether such a union of free states could long endure. Today it is fitting to recall that that union also chose as its temporary abode the city of New York. Although it was later to go through dark days of trial, that union did survive. It grew in strength, and it has played its part in preserving the blessings of liberty for all mankind. Today let us hope that the new and broader union of states, which has also chosen New York City as its temporary abode, will likewise grow in strength and likewise survive every crisis. The Secretary of State was whistling in a very dark alley. The U.N. almost cracked in half over a dispute about the oil fields in Iran. The Red Army wouldn't get out of Iran. And Hussein Allah, the Iranian representative, said, Soviet troops are still in Iran. Iran has suffered and is at this moment suffering from interference in its internal affairs through the intervention of Soviet agents, Soviet officials, and armed forces. Iran has no definite and unconditional assurances that these troops will be removed from the whole of our territory by a given date. And may I remind you that in connection with the negotiations that have taken place, demands have been made upon Iran inconsistent with its sovereignty and its territorial integrity. Such a state of affairs is, as I have said, explosive. The matter, I repeat, is of great urgency. The presence of foreign forces in any country constitutes not only an infringement of the sovereignty, but also a heavy burden on the people and an interference in their daily life. It is equally an impediment to the exercise of the authority of the government. We have had foreign forces in Iran for over four years. And you must realize, gentlemen, how anxious we are to be rid of them. But Soviet Russia insisted that the Iranian problem was not to be raised at that meeting. And Andrei Gromyko, representing the Soviets, finally stood up and said, I am not able to participate further in the discussions, and I therefore leave the meeting. The Security Council of the UN is man's last remaining chance to avoid the final disaster of another war. And before the council had hardly been started, the delegate from the Soviet said, I am not able to participate further in the discussions, and I therefore leave the meeting. The scenery here at home was just as depressing as the view in Europe. For instance, this American household, where a mother who has been watching by the window of her tenement apartment Finally, here's her husband come in the door. Fred, what took you so long? Is there any word about Johnny? Was he hurt? What's happened to him? Just a minute, Helen. Sit down there. Answer my question. What's happened to Johnny? He wasn't hurt. Oh. Well, I've been sitting here for, well, it seemed like years. I, I kept telling myself, he's been wrong. He's only 14. He's not really grown up. 
You shouldn't let him run around the street that way. If he even hurt Fred, I'd never have forgiven myself. Where is he, Fred? He's down at the police station. The police station? But why should They're he... keeping him there because... Well... Why? Why are they keeping him there? He and some other boys... They got a hold of a gun. But was there an accident? They wouldn't tell anyone how they got the gun, but... Well, I guess they saw a gangster movie, so they... Tried to hold up a jewelry store at 7th and Maple. They... What? The owner put up a fight and... Go on, go on. Our boys... Being held for murder. For murder? Oh, no, 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 no. Juvenile delinquency in the United States is up more than 100%. Arrests of boys under 18 for homicide are up 50%. Theories about the cause are plentiful, but two factors are obvious. There is a disgraceful shortage of teachers, largely because the teaching profession is miserably underpaid. Beyond that, many a sociologist points an accusing finger at parents. Instability in the home is a prime factor in causing delinquency. And the American home this year was more unstable than ever. For the divorce rate is up, too. It's at an all-time high. If it continues... By 1965, 50% of all United States marriages will end in a divorce court. In looking back at this past year, try that on your piano. In July and August, we conducted two experiments, Operation Crossroads and Operation Baker the explosion of two atomic bombs at Bikini Atoll in the Pacific. The test may have answered many questions about the bomb, but there was no doubt that they had failed to answer the question hanging over the head of every citizen like the thought of Damocles. How shall mankind control the use of the bomb? Bernard M. Baruch headed a committee this year to make recommendations on that question. WOR listeners heard Mr. Baruch explaining his plan to the Atomic Energy Commission. We propose this. One manufacturer of atomic bombs shall stop. Two existing bombs shall be disposed of pursuant to the terms of the treaty. <coughs> and three, the authorities shall be in possession of full information as to the know-how for the production of of atomic knowledge. Having listed his proposals, Mr. Baruch continued with a plea aimed at the Soviet Union, a suggestion that was a key point in the outline. Mr. Baruch said, There must be no veto to protect those who violate their solemn agreement not to develop or use atomic energy for destructive purposes. The bomb does not wait upon debate. To delay, maybe to die. Mr. Baruch was willing for the United States to surrender its atomic secrets, if and when a reasonable foundation for world security had been established. 
He continued. As the successive stages of international control are reached, the United States will be prepared to yield to the extent required by each stage national control of activities in this field for the authority. But the Soviet has repeatedly rejected Mr. Baruch's plan because the Soviet will not surrender its veto rights. So there isn't any signed agreement for controlling the bomb. And there's very little time. We have been given the facts. An atomic bomb containing 100 kilograms of U-235 would be ten times as powerful as the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Such bombs could cripple the United States in a matter of minutes. The American people knew all this, and the American people responded to the challenge. Realizing they were in mortal danger, the American people spoke. Hey, y'all, get your fresh atom bomburgers here. The most delicious little sandwich on the midway. They're just 15 cents. Get your fresh atom bomburgers here. The American people spoke. radio program to introduce a fragrance that will capture the heart of your beloved. It's Princess Helena's Atomic Parfum. A perfume with the same exciting, different quality as the swirl of Mother Nature's atoms in the blue, blue Pacific. The American people spoke. show here in the Elton Theater tonight, folks. <laughs> but be sure and come next week when we present that sensational dancer, Dusty Levine, known to one and all as the Anatomic Drum Dancer. <laughs> available now which can destroy not only every human being, but every living thing on the sixth continent. Having wiped himself off the face of the earth, man would not have left a single bird, a flower, or a blade of grass to point out to the vast silence of the cosmos that there had once been life, if not wisdom, on this planet. Get the atom bombbiggers here. Get the red hot fresh atom bombbiggers. Want to be a diplomat when you grow up, son? Do diplomats live to a ripe old age, giving lectures to tea-drinking fat ladies in Dubuque? Or do they, like certain presidents, die of the strain long before their time. Remember, the historians of tomorrow can be cruel, 
and they wait with their pens poised, and their ears keyed to the words coming from behind the open doors of the conference room. To establish the peace, Americans this year had a sturdy gentleman on the job named James F. Burns. Mr. Burns attended a conference in Paris early this year, a conference attended also by Bevan, Bido, and Molotov. Although Mr. Burns worked tirelessly, the Paris Peace Conference was not successful. Mr. Burns explained his difficulty. I, I do not believe that the Soviets fully realize the doubts and suspicions which they have raised in the minds of those in other countries who want to be their friends by the aloofness, coolness, and hostility with which they have received America's offer to guarantee jointly the continued disarmament of Germany. Had America been a party to such a guarantee after World War I, World War II would never have occurred and the Soviet Union would never have been attacked and devastated. Is German militarism going to be used as a pawn in a struggle between the East and the West? And is German militarism again to be given the chance to divide and conquer? To that question, there must be an unequivocal answer. For equivocation will increase unbearably which men of goodwill everywhere are trying to relieve. Then Mr. Burns visited Germany after the conference to report on our occupation, which had not been going well at all. In Stuttgart, Mr. Burns said, The principal purposes of the military occupation were and are to demilitarize and denazify Germany, but not to raise artificial barriers so the efforts of the German people to resume their peacetime economic life. The Nazi war criminals were to be punished for the suffering they brought to the world. The policy of reparations and industrial disarmament besides in the Potsdam Agreement was to be carried out. But the purposes of the occupation did not contemplate the so long foreign dictatorship of Germany's peacetime economy, or its so long foreign dictatorship of Germany's internal political life. What same agreement expressly bound the occupying powers to stop building a political democracy from the ground up. Remember, peace comes high, the price being above the ability of one human to pay. The price being demanded of every human, many of whom welch on the debt, making the cost still higher to those who struggle for it. Mr. Burns worked patiently on, attending another meeting in Paris, which ended in October, a meeting with the same pattern of frustration. Mr. Burns reported, I should be less than frank if I did not confess my bewilderment at the motives which the Soviet delegation attributed to the United States at Paris. Not once, but many times. They charged that the United States had enriched itself during the war, and under the guise of freedom for commerce, and equality of opportunity for the trade of all nations, was now seeking to enslave Europe economically. 
coming from any state, these charges would be regrettable to us. They are particularly regrettable when they are made by the Soviet government, to whom we advanced more than $10 billion of land lease during the war, and with whom we want to be friendly in time of peace. Remember, peace is made with the elements of time and patience and fraternity, commodities not available at your local grocer. But they were commodities Mr. Burns still prayed might be found in abundance, as he said. But if the temple of peace is to be built, the idea of the inevitability of conflict must not be allowed to dominate the minds of men and tear asunder a world which God made one. It is that idea of the inevitability of conflict that is threatening the economic recovery of Europe. It is that idea that is causing artificial tensions between states and within states. The United States stands for freedom for all nations and for friendship among all nations. We shall continue to reject the idea of exclusive alliances. We shall refuse to gang up against any state. We stand with all peace-loving, law-abiding states in defense of the principles of the Charter of the United Nations. Ambassador to France or to England or to Alice's Wonderland, exhausted with sleepless nights, walks wearily down the corridors of the world's capital, his briefcase under his arm. He glances at the huge clock. It is 1 a.m., the only time that such and such a meeting could be held. The ambassador sets his jaw grimly, hopes this time the formula will be understood. This time it will work. This time the treaty will be signed. He walks down the lonely corridor, conscious that outside the open door of the meeting room, the historians of tomorrow, a rueful smile on their faces, are waiting, with their ears keyed to each word, and their pens poised. Want to be a diplomat when you grow up, son? took 284 days. Five million words were spoken. The objective? To convince the world that Hitler's gang was a bunch of insane, bloodthirsty degenerates. Many a person whose loved ones had been tortured to death and then tossed into cremating ovens might have dispensed with the formality. Certain Russians might have done the job faster the mothers of Soviet babies from whom quarts of blood were drained for the benefit of Nazi soldiers. 
Certain poles might have cut down the time spent on the trial. The poles were in Warsaw when the Luftwaffe came over and machine gun civilians in the streets. Certain Dutchmen might have got to the point faster. The Dutch who were in Rotterdam were stripped and bombed long after the city had officially surrendered. For anyone whose husband or wife or child had been killed so that their human skin might be made into a lampshade to decorate the homes of the more influential Nazis. These people might not have waited 284 days, but the United Nations did. Then, finally in Nuremberg, Lord Justice Lawrence announced the sentences. WOR listeners heard him speak in a special broadcast direct from the courtroom. Defendant Hermann Wilhelm Goering, on the counts of the indictment on which you have been convicted, the International Military Bureau sentences you to death by hanging. Defendant Rudolf Hess, on the counts of the indictment on which you have been convicted, the tribunal sentences you to imprisonment for life. So the verdict went, and it was fascinating. Alma Schacht, whose financial acrobatics gave the Hitler gang their money and supported them throughout the regime, was acquitted. In case you didn't know it, it seems Halma Schacht is innocent as the lilies of the valley. Franz von Papen, whose diplomatic shenanigans made Hitler the master of Europe and almost master of the world, was acquitted. In case you didn't know it, Franz von Papen is pure and white as the driven snow. The two lovebirds were allowed to fly gently out of the coop and into the glowing morning sun. The court also absolved Hitler's general staff, Hitler's SA, and hasn't even arrested thousands of other Nazis. Eleven of the defendants were sentenced to be hanged, though Arthur Gates, a mutual radio reporter, attended the hanging. From Nuremberg, Mr. Gates described it. It was just seven minutes after one o'clock, European time, when the American Sergeant Wood and his assistant mounted the first platform and took up their positions with rope and hood. Orders were sent back to the prison to bring in Germany's once aggressive, vociferous foreign minister Joachim von Rippentrop from cell 7. He was guilty on four counts of conspiracy, crimes against the peace, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. It was 1.11, and the pale, exhausted, slightly disheveled, brown-suited 53-year-old worshiper of the Fear stood at the door, was uncuffed, led to the foot of the stairs where his hands were bound. Upon request, he repeated his name. Slowly, the 13 stairs were mounted. Rippentrop responded strangely to the permission given to make a last statement. He spoke intently, and I quote, God protect Germany. God have mercy on my soul. My last wish is that German unity be maintained 
that understanding between East and West be realized and there be peace for the world. End of quote. This man had thrown intrigue and sought to set East and West against each other for Germany's benefit. He seemed to sense the error of his way. Then came the hood, the trap, and von Rippentrop died at 1.29, 15 minutes later. Not all of those convicted were hung. One of the defendants, with a macabre sense of humor, knocked himself off before it was time for the hanging. Hitler's arrogant sidekick, Fatso Gehring, swallowed poison in his cell. Mr. Gates investigated that, too. Gehring, the active agent of Hitler, who combined a cord of steel and cruelty with a lust of self-adornment and power in a certain affability, the man who only last week broke down and cried when he met his wife, and she told him that his little daughter had said not to worry that she would see him in heaven, that man succeeded in taking cyanide of potassium. However, he did it so cleverly that the sentinel watching him did not even see him put his hand to his mouth. He was first observed as twitching. He was heard to make a strange sound. Then the sentinel called a corporal and entered the cell. When the German, Dr. Fluker, and the chaplain who were on the floor arrived, and with an officer rushed in, they already heard the death rattle. Examination of the room revealed an envelope torn open at the top, marked in pencil simply H. Gehring. It contained three pencils notes and a small brass container made from a cartridge case, standard Nazi leader equipment. Examination of Gehring revealed bits of glass in his mouth and an odor which to the doctor indicated the pressure or the presence of cyanide of potassium. The world's foremost exponents of fascism are dead. A couple of other boys are still waltzing around, though. Peron in Argentina, Franco in Spain, the Grand Mufti in Jerusalem, all of whom believe actively in Adolf's way of doing business. And listen to these voices at a midnight mass meeting. Yeah, sure. Uh, oh, that's what they do. Yeah. We're going to get dynamite. Yeah. And guns. Yeah. And someday we'll march on the capital. We'll run the country. Yeah. Who is that? Hitler? In Munich, maybe? In 1923? No. Those words were spoken by an American, Homer Loomis, and a group of his followers in an anti-Catholic, anti-Jewish, anti-Negro outfit called the Columbians. They organized in Georgia this year. The Ku Klux Klan was back, too. Vermin, small fry fascists are at work in every state in this democratic union trying every trick in the book to divide Americans and lynching a Negro now and then when they feel the need for a little entertainment. All this happened in 1946. And yet, 
You say this is the story of 1946, and no one is ashamed. For anyone who relaxed after the Nuremberg hanging, feeling that fascism was dead, here is a thought to kick around in your brain sometimes. It's a lot easier to kill a man than it is to kill an idea. The American housewife had a lovely year. When price controls ended last July, milk went up two to four cents a quart. Butter's up to almost a dollar a pound. And my husband says... Every time prices go up, men want higher salaries. To pay the salaries, industry has to boost prices again. It's a kind of a leapfrog formula. I wonder how much longer we can play leapfrog this way before we trip and break our necks. President Truman wanted the same thing, so he tried to keep price controls on meat and livestock, even though the OPA had collapsed. It was the second time the president got his finger caught in the machinery of public opinion. He'd already had an embarrassing moment when he approved the speech by Henry Wallace criticizing our foreign policy. The president's sincere effort to keep controls on meat brought about the most acute shortage of meat in the country's history. And the timing was bad. It was just before election time. Had enough? Vote Republican! As usual, Americans had a rip-roaring time with their elections. There were the jokes. <laughs> Well, I, I, I went to a party and had a lot of fun. We played pin the tail on the donkey. It was great until some Republicans came in and started using an ice pick. <laughs> you know, I, I get the latest inside dope in politics, you know. For instance, I don't know how serious Dewey is about wanting to be president, but yesterday he made a down payment on a piano. There were the speeches. There was the I am a true friend speech. I am a true friend of the veterans. I am a true friend of labor. There was the how much longer can we go on speech. And the I have served this community faithfully for many years speech. Then came election day. Theories about why it happened are a dime a dozen. One of them being that the meat shortage was the last humiliation that the public intended to tolerate. But the fact was that on Election Day, the Republican Party returned to power in many state governments and in Washington. Symbolic of the Republican victory was Dewey's smashing success in New York. WOR listeners heard Governor Dewey on election night. Quietly and firmly, but overwhelmingly, the people have spoken. And I believe this is what they've said. We want government that has both a heart and a head. We want government that can be both progressive and solvent. We want government that can make social advances and still be responsible. We want a state government that's effective but does not try to control the lives of its citizens. In short, our people want government that will serve the people without trying to become their master. 
I believe that's the kind of government my teammates and I have given in New York these last four years, and we shall do our level best to continue it in the years ahead. After the confetti and streamers had been swept out of the darkened auditorium and the bass drum stored away in the attic, thoughtful Americans had two reactions to the election. Pride because they were free elections, and dismay. For there was a damning fact in the return. The fact was that millions of United States citizens who were qualified simply didn't care enough about the destiny of their nation to bother to vote. They regarded the privilege of making themselves heard in a democracy as an unnecessary nuisance. Sorry, you gentlemen of Valley Forge, Gettysburg, Verdun, and the beaches of Normandy. A gentleman whose name you will recognize said this. Prosecute me? For what? We're exercising our right to strike. That breaks no law. Let them seize the mine. That won't produce any coal. We accuse by the record that the management and stockholders of the bituminous coal industry in a period of 14 years have, through mismanagement and cupidity and wanton neglect, made dead 28,000 mine workers and shattered the bodies of 1,004,000 miners. John L. Lewis didn't say that recently. He said it last May when he pulled his miners out for a period of two months while United States industry almost stopped entirely. This had happened eight times in the past five years, and each time the miners have stood behind the man with the world's most famous eyebrows. They did this because the great John L. had managed to get their salaries up from 50 cents an hour in 1933 to $1.47 an hour this past summer, making him definitely their boy. As 1946 drew to a close, John L. demanded a 40-hour week instead of a 54-hour week, with no reduction in pay. When he didn't get it, he pulled the miners out again. The public, which had nothing but compassion for the miners themselves, felt this way about John L. Every couple of months, that guy Lewis has the miners working in the mines, and then not working. First they do, then they don't. What's he think this is, a gag or something? Who's running this country? Lewis or the government? On behalf of the government which operates the mine, Federal Judge Alan Goldsboro gave John L. an order to keep the mines open. But the mighty man didn't do it. So he was hauled into court on contempt charges. While the trial was on, these things were taking place. The United States came close to going out of business. Auto factories were closed. Steel foundries closed. Train service was cut. Twenty-one states enforced a wartime brownout. Hospitals faced a terrifying fuel shortage, and United States labor, fearing a setback for all unions, threatened a general strike. 
Europe and Asia, which depend heavily on our coal, had serious doubts again about how well American capitalism could function. In a Washington courtroom, Judge Goldsboro found Lewis guilty of contempt and ordered that the Mine Workers Union be fined three and a half million dollars. In the courtroom, Mr. Lewis's attorney, Welly Hopkins, popped up to denounce the judge for taking money away from the miners. Mr. Hopkins said, Shame upon a government representative that would undertake to perpetuate such an outrage. I denounce it as a day in infamy when you come to this court and ask that a crown of thorns be placed upon a man merely to satisfy the political program of an administration. Shame upon you. Double shame. Lewis, with the love of one ham actor for another, rose dramatically from his seat and said, Mr. Hopkins, may I shake your hand? I associate myself with every word you have uttered. It was from my heart, sir. Judge Goldsboro wasn't impressed. He not only stuck to his guns, but fired a blast. The judge said, This is not the act of a low lawbreaker. It is an evil, demoniac, monstrous thing. That means hunger and cold and unemployment and destitution and disorganization of the social fabric. John L. Lewis, who had reveled in his power for so many years, left the court with the expression of a man who had discovered his power was at last an empty and futile thing. He called off the strike, and the government had at last established a precedent that would prevent further strikes against federal authority. Mr. Lewis, apparently a well-read man, might have recalled a line of the poet Shelley as he left the courtroom. Power, like a desolating pestilence, pollutes whate'er it touches. The victory over John L. Lewis, coming as it did in a year of futility and defeat, brought a tide of optimism that flowed high as the Christmas spirit reached into the somber cloisters of the U.N. Closing its most recent series of meetings in New York, the United Nations accepted the gift from John D. Rockefeller, Jr. of an $8.5 million site in midtown Manhattan that would be the U.N.'s permanent home. The U.N. had also reached certain agreements in regard to disarmament, and the colonial trusteeship system. When he sailed for Moscow, the next meeting place of the U.N., Representative Molotov seemed in a more conciliatory mood. So, as the year ended, men could see hope ahead, even though there was still bitterness and destruction in the Far East and Palestine, even though revolution had broken out in French Indochina, even though they were shocked to learn today of the worst aviation disaster in history, when 62 persons died in airplane accidents over Shanghai. The looking back is painful. The wounds have been made, and they never quite heal. Time being a clumsy surgeon. So when you look back upon the story of 1946, there isn't really anything to do about it. What counts? is how Americans moved to the attack in 47. Theirs being a faith in themselves and their land that is too vast to articulate 
in these last few words. But the faith is there, and the strength, and the vision. If only we will use it. To 1947, then. To a joyful new year, fellow Americans. And pray God each of us may be worthy of the name. 1946 in Review was written by Howard Merrill and directed by Roger Bauer. The program was produced under the supervision of Dave Griscoll, director of WOR's News and Special Features Division, assisted by Edith Messeran. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.